Amos chapter 8 is where you can turn in your Bible if you brought it along with you. We're drawing near the uh, end of our study of the book of Amos, and today we'll look at the entirety of chapter 8 together. This is we begin this morning. I just wanted to highlight something I read in an article this week. The title of the article was, America is Now Ripe for Revival. It was written by Dr. Gary Hewins. And this is a bit of the assessment he had of the United States and the American church. And he says, America's moral decline is hallmarked by the ongoing objectification of women, our latent under-the-surface anger, our growing disdain for authority. I'm reading to that police and government. The discounting of human life, abortions, school shootings, our deadly obsession with opiates, bullying, divisiveness, character assassination, and the list goes on regarding the family, media, etc. Later on in the article, he goes on to say that America's spiritual decline can be attributed to some church's willingness to make accommodation for absolutes. Ironically, when the church gets goofy with core doctrine in hopes of being more relevant, the church only loses its credibility and effectiveness. The hopelessness, the hopeless world needs a church that stands up and believes and remains distinctive rather than one that sits down while compromising to look more appealing to a lost, dying and angry world. When sin is diluted or redefined, so too is the need for redemption, repentance, forgiveness, conviction, confession and ultimately a savior. And he concludes by saying, show me a nation that is confused, and I will show you a church that likely caused the confusion. Think about it. A nation is but a reflection of the health of the church. After I finished reading the article, I thought, well, yeah, I think we are ripe um, as a nation. Whether that is ripe for revival or ripe for God's judgment is in God's hand, but the church And the people called by the name of Christ certainly have a great responsibility in that. And so this morning, and based on Amos chapter 8, I want to propose to you this, that when the priorities of a society or an individual differ from God's, there will be a consequence. When the priorities of a society or individual differ from God's, there will be a consequence. Will you pause and pray with me, and then we'll look at the verses together. God, this morning we are thankful for your presence with us. God, we we are thankful that you've given us your word, and that it's useful to train us into all righteousness. And God, I thank you that while your word encourages us so often, it also rebukes and corrects us, that it straightens our path. And so God, we're asking this morning where we need encouragement, encourage us. Where we need correction, correct us. Where we're crooked, straighten us along the plumb line of your word. Train us up as your people through the truth of your word and the power of your spirit to be men and women that are called by your name for your purposes, to walk holy and upright lives in a godless age, that we might be shining examples of what it means to follow a living Savior. That through the old clay pots that we are, that the light of your goodness and your mercy, the power of that is from you in us would shine out to a lost and dying world. 
We ask you would do that um, for your glory, for your sake, and for our benefit. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So I've divided this section into really to, to three headings, the first of which is ripe for judgment. Ripe for judgment. Two weeks ago, we looked at the first three visions that God showed Amos. We looked at a locust plague. We looked at fire. We looked at the plumb line. Those visions are interrupted by a protest from the religious leader, Amaziah, that we looked at last week. And now as we get to chapter 8, we see the fourth of those visions. And once again, God takes an ordinary thing and gives it a spiritual meaning. So look at verses 1 and 2 with me. This is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, a basket of summer fruit. And he said, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a a basket of summer fruit. It's a bit ironic, isn't it? Then the Lord said to me, the end has come upon my people Israel. I will never again pass by them. So if we were in elementary school, the first comprehension question would be, what did Amos see? And you would likely respond, what? A basket of summer fruit. Good answer. That fruit was the the last fruit of the harvest. During the the time of August and September there in the land of Israel, the fruit would be ripened. It would be ready to be harvested and soon to be eaten. It was the last fruit of the season, was picked, ripe, ready to eat, and soon to expire. So imagine in our day, peach season. And you know, when peaches ripen on the tree, the peaches need to be picked from the tree and they need to be prepared because they don't last long. And amazing, you know, and the, and the Blue Jays know peaches are ripe before humans do. And so you have to get to the peaches before the Blue Jays do. And then you have to do something with them pretty quick. Because if you just leave them in the basket or the bowl or whatever, pretty soon they begin to do what? They rot. And so imagine fruit that is ready to be eaten. Not now, not yesterday, but now. Or imagine, you know, bananas that are brown. That's the connection that he wants us to see between summer fruit in verse 1 and the the phrase the end in verse 2. You see, there's two words there in Hebrew that sound really, really similar. One of the words is kayats, and the other word is it's kets. And they are not related at all, but they just sound similar. And what he's wanting them to know is that the end was near for Israel. That the fruit fruit was ripe in the basket and so was Israel and it was so ripe that it would soon be rotten before you knew it now twice before in in the the book we've seen that God had decided to bring judgment and he relented based on the prayers of of Amos but this time judgment would come they had heart they had grown a a bumper crop of idolatry unrighteousness and injustice And now was the last of the harvest season and there was no occasion for hope. Now during the normal harvest time, the bringing in of the harvest would have been a joyful celebration when the crops came in. There would be feasting, there would be revelry, there would be dancing and excitement. But verse 3 paints a very different picture. You see there in verse 3 that it's a time of wailing and tragedy and death. And he gives us three short exclamations, three bursts that give us just a a sense of what's going on. So many dead bodies. They are thrown everywhere. Silence. That the grief would be too strong for even words. 
It was too late for Israel to change their course, to change the future. The nation had continued in sin. Their end had been determined. It's a reminder to all of us that that sin and evil are not light matters in God's eyes. He takes them very seriously. He'll deal with them completely. And that the end of those without repentance and turning to Christ is, is death. And so the end was coming and it was a consequence of their own actions. It was their own doing. They had persisted in sin and evil. They were pridefully self Dependent, They were unwilling to repent. And like Hosea points out in his prophecy, they had planted the wind and now they would harvest the whirlwind. And the imagery of, of sowing and reaping, God uses it throughout Scripture and it would have been something very common to people in ancient days. Now to people that live in the city or grew up in the city, you know, the most planting and harvesting they may have done is planting a bean in a styrofoam cup, watching it grow in a window, or maybe a tomato in a container in their backyard. But in this agricultural society, this sowing and reaping idea was very easy for them to understand. They knew that you planted a seed in the ground, you watered it, you tended it, you weeded it, you raised it up, and hopefully the result would be a harvest. And then the action came of reaping or bringing in the crop. And a principle of gardening, no matter where you plant something in the ground is, is the kind of seed that you put in the ground matters. If you plant corn, you get corn. You plant wheat, you get wheat. A good seed would bring about a good harvest and a bad seed would bring about a bad harvest. And what we see is that's exactly what Israel is guilty of. They were sowing bad seed. That's the second thing you see there. It's verses 4 through 6. The reason that God was judging Israel was because they continued to sow bad seed. There was injustice and unrighteousness. What did they continue to do? They continued to oppress and to beat down the poor. There was immorality. They were worshiping golden calves and statues, representation of their, their God, in these temples at Dan and Bethel. They were going to the worship services and just kind of walking through the motions. Just, you know, I'm here, I'm, I'm doing my duty, but I'm not really involved in my relationship with God is not right. I'm here in body, but my heart's not in it. You can review those listing of sinful acts back in chapter 2 and verses 6 through 8, but in these verses, chapter 8, verses 4 through 6, Amos addresses mainly the wealthy merchants who were making exorbitant profits at the expense of the poor. Look at verse 4 with me. Hear this, you who tremble on the needy, who trample on the needy, and bring the poor of the land to an end. So these businessmen were making money, lots of it, but they were doing it on the backs or at the expense of the poor. They were walking all over them and they didn't even give it a second thought. These men were extremely annoyed that the Sabbath interrupted their business. I think about Chick-fil-A and their, their commitment to remain closed on Sunday, the Lord's Day. And I think about the other businesses that have plowed right through seven days a week and now have trampled over almost every holiday because they see them as annoyances. They see them as a lost opportunity to gain profit. 
But they didn't stop there. They were also dishonest with their weights and measures. They were ruthless in their practices. Now back to the annoyance of the Sabbath. These guys couldn't wait for the religious festivals and the Sabbath to be over. They're the person that would attend the service. They would check their watch all the time. They, they longed for it to be over. They longed for the sun to set on the Sabbath and it to come up the next morning so they could get up, go out of, get out of bed and start making profit again. One commentator, commentator said they robbed God and their own souls one day and their neighbor the next. So they're going through the motions. They put on this show and they can't wait to get to work and to turn the sign around that says open for business. And when they got there, wheat was for sale, but there weren't any bargains to find. You see the second half of verse 5 and then verse 6 describe the practices, the illegitimate business practices, which literally broke the back of the poor. The last half of verse 5 reads, That we may make the ephah small and the shekel great, and deal deceitfully with false balances, that we may buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals, and sell the chaff of the wheat. So what's happening there in the market? Well, they're skimping on their measures. See, an ephah was a, a unit of measurement. And so by rigging their baskets, either putting a false bottom or using a smaller basket than was prescribed, they would sell less than the standard amount. So a pound wasn't a pound. It was really only, you know, 12 ounces in our day. And so they would skimp on the measurement, but then they would boost the price. They made the shekel great. And so the standard of measurement for the product they were delivering, they would reduce. So they were giving out smaller amounts. And the requirement, the weight that they would use to measure the coins that people would place was actually heavier than the weight of a shekel. And so, just for instance, let's just say it would normally take a dollar to buy something. It might take a dollar fifty because the weight was rigged for their advantage. And then they used dishonest scales, much like the, the tales you would, you would hear back in the day when people go to butchers where the butcher would place his, his thumb on the scale to make it weigh heavier than it actually would. They would go even to the point of mixing in the chaff with the wheat. So the things that were not suited to be eaten, the things that you would you know, literally maybe sweep up off the floor at the end of harvesting wheat, they would mix in with the wheat. So they would add some filler there to again, again increase profit. And their aim was this, profit through deceit. Because it was all about the bottom line. And then to seem to top it all off, when the poor were unable to cover their debts, they would sell them into slavery, Amos says, as easy as someone would buy a pair of shoes. As easy as you would just purchase something for your feet. And so in chapter 2, Amos points out that Israel was taking advantage of the ones that they were charged to care for. Remember, we looked at the fact that their privilege came with responsibility. And as Jesus said, to whom has been given much, much shall be required. And instead of caring for the poor like they were supposed to, they did the very opposite. And God says, I'm not going to overlook that. If you think about our day and you look at the cost of profit, 
It's kind of a weird way to say that, the cost of profit. But businesses, no matter where they are, are tasked with increasing profit. And I wondered, as I wrote this down, how far has our society gone to place profit ahead of people? Now, we could easily go to foreign factories and think about cheap labor and slave labor, you know, where they import all goods of all kinds. And, and the idea there is to have a low production cost so they can mark up the price and make profit. But I don't think we have to go that far. We can still look in our own country and see individuals cutting corners or maybe using lower grade materials to increase their profit. Or you look at maybe a decreased package size and an increased price. And since the love of money is the root of all evil, I think we can safely say that greedy men will do almost anything they can to get more. And Israel had sowed these seeds and now they would reap the effects. You see it in verses 7 through 14. They would reap the effects of the seed that they had sown. When Paul was writing to the Galatians in Galatians chapter 6 verse 7, he said this, Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. It's a universal truth, isn't it? We always reap what we sow. Beans grow beans. Corn grows corn. And unrepentant sin grows. We always reap the effect. Israel sowed those seeds. Idolatry, injustice, unrighteousness. And now they were reaping the effect of their own actions. It's the inevitable result of sin. It will lead to destruction and death if not checked, if not Repented, repented from and forgiven. And God says with a solemn promise, the Lord has sworn that their deeds would not be forgotten and they would be punished. Why? Because of their pride. Because they refused to repent. They refused to return to God. He was going to judge them. Now in these verses, in 7 through 14, you, you need to look at two phrases. One is worded a little bit different. But the word day appears several times. It'll say that day or the day. And that points to the day of the Lord. And the other phrase I want you to notice, don't miss, is I will. It's all through there. It's peppered in almost every verse. I will, I will, I will. It's God speaking. And he wants us to know without a doubt that it's his plan. It's God's plan. It's God's actions. It was God's idea. Now, when we remember back to that day of the Lord, when we look through chapter 5, we remember that Amos said, Woe to those who look for the day of the Lord. Because it would be a day of what? A day of darkness, not light. Oh, it's not going to be as exciting as you think it's going to be. It's going to be like a man who is fleeing from a lion, meets a bear, finds a brief respite in in a house, and he leans against the wall and he's bitten on the hand by a snake. It will be a day of calamity, a day of mourning, and a day of destruction. And he gives us in these verses four pictures of what it would be like. The first you can find in verse 8, he says it will be like an earthquake. Now the word earthquake does not appear there. 
If you have the ESV, it may in some translations. But he says in the first part of verse 8 this, Shall not the land tremble on this account? Now whether he's speaking about a literal earthquake or its figurative language, the, the picture is, is, is certain. It's easy to understand that there would be a shaking of the land. That the land would rise and fall like the Nile River. And did you know that at flood stage, the Nile River could rise as much as 25 feet above the normal level? That it would rise and, be, and fall, it would pitch and, and move. And the result would be that everyone would mourn. It would be a terrible day, a day of destruction, a day of judgment. But he moves on to verse 9, he says, It would be like an eclipse or like darkness. Verse 9, And on that day declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. Now it's interesting to note that historians have, have calculated the dates of two eclipses that would have happened during the time of Amos and also the time of an earthquake. And you remember the, the book starts with a rep time reference to the earthquake. And so these pictures would have been easy for those that would read or hear these words to understand because they had experienced these things. Now, it very possibly may have been an eclipse. Undoubtedly, it was darkness. And if you've ever experienced an eclipse like the one we had not long ago, it's, it's really pretty awesome to um, observe. You know, to be able to, to look down and see when the, you know, the, the sun is shining through trees, that the, sh- the shade is made like little, tri- you know, little moon shapes because of the eclipse. But imagine you're living thousands of years ago. You don't have any understanding of, of, of science beyond the fact that you know that at some time it gets dark. Well, that would be a time of fear and of, of wonder. You know, is this going to be the end? And light was something that was celebrated back in those days. It was light that was brought forth at creation. It was light that represented truth. It was light that was also a symbol of life itself. And so to have a day that would be dark would be a reminder that the happy days they had experienced, the prosperity the prophet was all coming to an end and that there would be those days of lament, of mourning, and of misery. Remember, Amos says it's a day of darkness, not light. And Isaiah and Joel both say the same thing in their prophecy about the day of the Lord. So there would be like an earthquake, a shaking of the earth. There would be darkness. Verse 10, he pictures it much like a funeral. In that verse, you'll see key words like mourning, lamentation, sackcloth, Baldness, all symbols of, of sadness, that it would be a bitter day like the loss of an only son. It would be a sorrowful day where you would want to put on sackcloth, you would want to go into a mourning because you had lost something that was precious to you. And in verse 11, he brings us to famine. Famine in that day was a fearful disaster that brought almost certain ruin and death. But this famine would be different. Look at verse 11. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land. But then he says, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. Adam Clark, in his commentary written long ago, said this, It would be a time in which no prophet would appear, no spiritual counselor, no faithful reprover, 
None any longer who would point the way to salvation or would assure them of the mercy of God on their repentance and return to Him. You see, year after year, God had spoke. Prophet after prophet after prophet had come and spoken to God's people. But they wouldn't listen. And now, in verse 12, Israel would look for God's word, but they wouldn't find it. They'll wander from sea to sea and from north to east. They shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. Another place in Scripture it says, Seek the Lord while he may be found be a time so devastating that even the young, those that represent the strongest and most resilient of society would suffer as well. And then look at verse 14. Those who swear by the guilt of Samaria and say as your God lives, O Dan, and as the way of Beersheba lives, they shall fall and never rise again. See, the Israelites had settled for a counterfeit They had exchanged what was true for what they wanted to believe. It was represented in the fact that they took these golden calves given by Jeroboam the first. Here is your God, O Israel. Placed them at Dan at Bethel. They began to worship them. They replaced what was true and right with something that maybe was a little more convenient. That maybe allowed them a little more leeway in what they wanted to do. But now those golden calves... Couldn't help them. There was nothing they could do. Because they weren't real. The faith, the wealth that they had accumulated, the possessions, their fine houses, their money, wouldn't be any benefit for them. It was literally nothing that could save them. And God's word through Amos, they shall fall and never rise again. Because they had replaced God's truth with something that was not true. And now when they would even long for the truth because of their stubbornness, because of their pride and their blindness, they wouldn't hear it. Now I don't want you to understand, I don't want you to see in these verses any idea that God stopped speaking. Because God speaks. But I do believe that there is a hardness of heart. There is a a stubbornness in our spirits that we can reach where we don't hear God's voice speaking to us. And I believe that's where Israel was. McFadden, a Scottish commentator who wrote a wonderful little book on Amos, it's just short, but it's filled with just great nuggets, said this, those who deliberately and persistently reject some messenger or truth or blessing of God may find one day to their infinite sorrow that it is beyond their reach though they seek it with careful tears. God spoke, spoke, spoke. Israel wouldn't listen. And now the end had come. Let me repeat what I said at the beginning. When the priorities of a society or an individual differ from God's, there will be a consequence was true in the day of Israel, the day of Amos. It's still true today. A nation or society that rejects God's truth 
resists his instruction, and shows no respect for human life, will face God's judgment. Any person who rejects God's truth, who resists his instruction, will face that judgment as well. But here's the good news. Any nation that turns to God in confession and repentance will find God's healing for their land. And any person who turns to God in confession and repentance, placing faith in Christ, will find salvation. There is a hope that remains for those who will turn toward their God. So in closing, I want to just give you the remedy. What do we do with this? How do we approach our lives in a way that we assure that we sow the right seeds? And then when we reach our expiration date, when God says it's time that we have the assurance of salvation, of heaven, and the accommodation from our master, well done, good and faithful servant. I have three things, I think. I think the first one is this. Good seed and good soil bears good fruit. It's an undeniable formula. Good seed and good soil bears good fruit. Luke chapter 8, Jesus speaking, verse 15. is for that in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit. With patience. There's a lot packed in there that's encouraging to me and encouraging to you, hopefully, as well, that this process, first of all, is going to be slow, or it may seem slow. Growth takes time. I planted some, some grass to cover some ground, some dead spots that weren't dead until I sprayed Roundup on them because I didn't like the the weeds that were growing there and I've watered and I've watered and I've watered and after about two weeks of watering I have these little tiny green fuzzy hair-like things popping above the ground that if I can keep enough water on them will grow and not die but if I stop watering them for an instant they're just going to turn brown and fall over dead but it's taken time and so in our spiritual growth that when we are good soil tilled and open to what God has, if the good seed's planted, that persistence and trust are necessary. Hold it fast and bear fruit with patience. But all through this, we have to remember that God is faithful. Because good seed planted in good soil bears good fruit. And it's God who brings the growth according to His time. So if you're struggling, thinking, am I going to grow? If you're looking at someone and thinking, are they ever going to grow up? Just trust the process. Continue praying. Allow God to work. Second, similar to that, is to sow to the Spirit. How we live out our life matters. Galatians chapter 6, second half of verse 8 and then verse 9 says, The one who sows to the Spirit will, from the Spirit, reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up the actions the thoughts of our daily life what we allow in our life in our minds through our eyes matters sowing to the spirit means that our actions our thoughts the things we do in our daily life are things that are in accordance with the truth of God's word 
which basically says if God says it's out of bounds, it's out of bounds. If God says it's in bounds, it's in bounds. And that we need to make sure that the things we intake are things that God says are okay. And if we're honest with ourselves, our conscience will tell us every time. But here's the truth. Whether, we're, whether it's flesh or spirit, what we feed the most will grow the most. If you're in God's word, if you're praying, if you're, if you're living a life of, of, of worship and practicing confession and repentance, then your spiritual life will grow. But the opposite of that is also true. If you're so into the flesh, if it's about me, myself, and I, what I want, when I want, then that's going to grow too. And so we have to be careful. We have to sow good seed into our own lives. And then third, we need to remember that we sow, we water, and we trust God to reap the harvest. Do you remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 6, in speaking encouragement, Paul says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. I find in that encouragement for you and I to keep sowing seeds of God's word and the gospel. Deborah challenged the, the girls this morning. I think it's a good challenge for us. Jesus loves you. Speaking the name of Jesus is powerful. Speaking of his love is transformational. And so I encourage you. Let's do that this week. Jesus loves you. Stand on the truth of God's word. Stand on the truth of the gospel. It's real. It's the truth. It stood the test of time and it's not going anywhere. Keep investing in the lives of those around you. Even the people that you shared with and so far have been resistant to the truth that have been unwilling to accept the reality that God loves them and that through Jesus they can have salvation. And then trust God for the growth. Let me close with this. 2 Corinthians 9, verse 10. It's a reminder. It's a profession. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. Let's sow good seeds. We pray. Father in heaven, we are grateful for your presence here with us. We're thankful for your word that stands true and has stood the test of time. We thank you that even through the fallible words of men that your unfailing truth has been brought forth century after century. We thank you that we have the gift of your truth. And now, God, we're asking for you to grant us willing hearts, open hearts, that you would increase our, our faith to the point of acknowledging the truth. Applying it to our lives as knowledge. God, what you've said is true. Who you are is who you are. You're not just a, a fabrication or a dream. You're not just good thoughts that make people feel better, but that you are real. And you have a son whose name is Jesus that loves us, died for us, was rose from the dead so that we could rise also. 
And God, help us as your people here, Cross Timber in Burleson in Joshua, Texas. People that would embrace the challenge of simply trusting you through hardship, through difficulty, through doubt, through disbelief, and that we would find that you are faithful. God, that we would be quick to run to you when we've blown it, quick to confess, quick to repent, quick to receive the healing and the forgiveness that you so graciously offer. And Lord, we would see our responsibility. We would see our calling as individuals and as a church to rise up and be who you've called us and created us to be. Because our hope won't come from the White House. Our hope won't come from a political party. It won't come from the governor's office or the mayor's office. But it comes from you. And you've chosen this season to work in the lives of individuals who gather together in what we call the church, gathered each week, time after time, in communities around our country and around the world. Lord, help us to heed your warnings, to hear your call, and to walk in your ways. That your name may be glorified that the good news of the gospel would be spread throughout our, our land and that we would be faithful servants called by your name, doing your will to the praise of your glory. Father, we lift that prayer up to you in the wonderful name of Jesus, our Savior. And we say, Amen and Amen.